By the end of 2023, bourbon is expected to be an almost $9 billion industry. That's a lot of mint juleps and bourbons need. But what makes bourbon so appealing? The chemistry behind this American spirit is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Michael Crowder. Crowder is a professor of chemistry and dean of the graduate school at Miami University. Crowder's research interests lie in bio-inorganic chemistry, and he's also really into the science behind bourbon. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Rosemary. Um, I I love bourbon. It's one of my favorite uh you know, alcoholic drinks, and I wonder, how did you come to this interest in bourbon? Well, so um, when I was a kid, um, I was very fortunate to live in a in a town where a lot of my my extended family lived right there in the town. And um, every Thanksgiving and Christmas, our families would come together, and these were pretty impressive things. Um, the men had to wear coat and ties, including the boys. Oh wow! Oh boy! And um, the women would wear dresses, and everybody would bring food. And it was a time to just sit back and enjoy each other's company. I remember vividly that the men would often retire to one of the front rooms. And in those front rooms, there would be bourbon flowing. And it was usually Virginia gentlemen in early times, which I look back on that now and saying, wow, we could have done a little better. (laughs) Um, But they, they would be in there. There were some cigarette smoking and going on, but they would be drinking bourbon and discussing exactly the topics that you shouldn't be discussing with family, religion and politics. <laughs> and I remember as a boy, I was always kind of terrified because there would be voices raised and everything. But um, I couldn't wait till I was I would be invited to go uh-huh. and be with the men. And when we were probably um, I have a twin brother and a cousin that's the same age and we were probably invited when we were 13 or 14 years old and they gave us a little glass and they waved the bourbon over and put some ginger ale and ice in it and we felt very special none of us said a word but um, (laughs) at least the first couple of years and then they got to the point where they couldn't shut any of us up (laughs) Um, but I look back on that as one of my favorite times um, and it was around bourbon it was about fellowship and it was about enjoying each other's company and so I look back very fondly on that and then if you go ahead forward into the future a little bit uh, when my father was um, passing away from cancer I would drive to Virginia every weekend so that's about a ten and a half hour drive each way and I would pour him a bourbon and we would sit down and just discuss things. Mm. And so those two things, it was around fellowship and enjoying each other's company, is really where my love of bourbon started. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I was destined at some point to maybe do research on it. It just it would take a few years. Yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm sitting here picturing you holding a glass of bourbon and someone saying, you know, Mike, what are you doing? And, and you're saying, I'm, I'm doing research. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. And and actually, I've gotten to where I really appreciate, I take time and I, I nose it. Oh. Um, the, the palate is, every bourbon is different. 
And I have found that even my mood and what I did that day and what I ate that day will change the way that I actually experience bourbon. And I always start out neat with Mm -hmm. it and then always add ice to it to see if the bourbon can hold up Mm. to the ice. And not all of them can. So what is a bourbon? Yeah, so bourbon is an American spirit. It is the distinctive American spirit. It is a whiskey. And so all bourbons are whiskeys, but not all whiskeys are bourbons. Bourbon has a very strict definition associated with it as defined by law. It needs to be made from at least 51% corn. And the recipe for bourbon is called, for any distilled spirit is called its mash bill. So it must have 51% corn. And then almost all bourbons have some percent, maybe 10% malted barley. And there, there's science reasons for having the malted barley. And then the flavoring grain can either be wheat or rye. And all of those have to, of course, add up to 100%. A second very important part of bourbon is is that when it is distilled, it can only be distilled to 160 proof or less. And so the reason for that is is that at 160 proof, there's still other chemicals called congeners that are in the bourbon, and they actually add to the flavor of bourbon. When the distilled spirit uh, is put into a barrel, it must be at 125 proof or less. And then when it's bottled, it needs to be at least 80 proof or, or higher. And so there's a bunch of different distinguishing parts of bourbon, and you have to follow those, those laws in order to be able to call your product a bourbon. One thing that most people believe is, is that they believe the law says that it must be aged mm. in a barrel. And that is not the way the law is, is written. What it says is it has to go into an unused charred oak container. It never uses the word barrel. And another thing that many people don't realize is that they think that bourbon must be made in Kentucky. And 95% of the world's bourbon is made in Kentucky, but it has to be made in the United Mm -hmm. States or in United States territory to be called a bourbon. So what gives bourbon its its flavor? I, I love whiskey just generally, very broadly. But I'm not a huge fan of scotch. It's one of the whiskeys that I just can't get into. Yes. Um, and people are always kind of surprised about that because I like bourbon. Uh, well, I like whiskey generally. What what gives bourbon its flavor? How do whiskeys sort of get their flavor? And what is it about bourbon that is so special? Yeah, so I, I'm not a huge fan of scotch either. And That's right. La- I'm <laughs> John. sorry, John. <laughs> but the reason is, is that very often scotch, um, first of all, there is no corn in scotch. It right. has to be malted right. barley. Right. And some of the most famous scotches, in order to dry the malted barley, they used peat and would heat the peat and use that to drive out the water so it wouldn't continue to do its its chemistry inside those seeds. And that imparts a flavor on it. And um, that chemical, we actually can detect that chemical. It's called phenylethanol, and it has the flavor of Band-Aid adhesive. And, huh. and and then also in Scotch. You should be in marketing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not a good, that's usually not a very good thing. But, but there, there's that same chemical in bourbon, too. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then also in Scotch, there, it stays in barrels much longer than most bourbons do, typically. 
And so there's a lot more of those flavors coming out too. And there's a whole range of chemicals that you can detect in scotch mm-hmm. as well. They're in, they're in bourbon too, but mm-hmm. not at highest levels as you do in scotch. With bourbon, one of the things that always people get is that sweetness. Mm-hmm. And that's coming from the corn. Uh, and corn is very important for the flavor profile of bourbon. You also, though, from the barrel aging, though, you have pulled chemicals out of that that barrel. And, um, and then also remember, we only distill to 160 proof or less. So there's other chemicals that yeast made during fermentation, and those chemicals are there. But that's still not even the full story. Inside that barrel, there is all sorts of chemistry going on with oxygen. So the distillate in that barrel will actually evaporate out of the barrel over time. And when that does, oxygen comes in. And oxygen gets activated. We don't know the chemistry behind it, but it will react with those compounds from the wood and then from the yeast to make new compounds. Many of them are flavor compounds. Hmm. And that's what you really love, things that are in there that have green apple taste. Mm. And there are things with banana taste in it that are actually, some of them are made by yeast, but some of them are made in the barrel. Mm-hmm. So I, I read in some, some of the background that we had looked at that, that something like 70% of bourbon's final flavors are from the interactions with the, the, where they're stored. And the barrel. The barrel actually introduces, most people would argue, about 70% of the flavor. And so um, a good thing for you to try is that occasionally you can find at the store, um, there are things called white dog that you can find. (laughs) And so that is a distillate that never touched a barrel. And so you should actually do a little experiment and taste that and then taste an aged barrel. Mm-hmm. And what you're tasting the difference is, is what came out of the barrel and the chemistry that occurred in the barrel. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's awesome. It's very complicated too. When I was working in public radio, one of the, one of my favorite stories was about home brewing in Alabama, because at the time in Alabama, you could not sell high alcohol beers. And so, but you could brew them yourself. And so I hung out in this um, brew store for like a whole day with these guys who were brewing beer. And one of the people was a theoretical chemist. And he told me the only real chemistry he ever did was when he was brewing his beer. And so I wonder what, what are exactly when you are studying bourbon and looking at it, what are you looking at? How are you studying this spirit besides sort of smelling it and tasting it? Yeah. And and so, and that's an excellent point. And I will tell you that at these big distilleries, they have blenders and uh, master distillers who can taste and smell chemicals at levels that there there is no instrumentation that can detect it at that wow. level. They have trained their palates their, and their noses to be able to detect things that is just unbelievable. And so a lot of the bourbon science was very it's a lot of art to it at one time. It was making the right choices, which barrels in that rickhouse need to be combined with other ones. And there was such an, an opening of, well, what's the science that's going on here? Why is that in some cases barrels that are put in a rickhouse, they go up in proof over time and other ones go down in proof over time? What, what's happening there? And, and if you go on bourbon trail trips, they will invariably tell you that wrong. They'll oh, say, really? They'll say, oh, the proof always goes up in a barrel. That's not true at all. It, it depends on the barrel, and it depends on where it is in the rickhouse. 
And so when I used to take a group of Miami students down to um, Moonshine University <laughs> in Louisville, we taught a fermentation class. So it was Luis Actis, chair of microbiology. Uh, Tom Chris started that with us. And then we had faculty from um, chemical engineering, from chemistry, from psychology, biology, microbiology. And we would teach this fermentation class each year in the fall. And it was 6 to 9 p.m. on Wednesdays because we did field trips. <laughs> so we, did, we would go to breweries and, and work with the head brewers. And then we even went to some distilleries while we were doing this class. And at the end of that fall semester in winter term, one of Miami's alums, Dave Defoe, owns um, Flavor Man down in Louisville, and he opened up his own distillery and learning center called Moonshine University. And the general public can go to this and where you can actually learn how to do distillation oh, wow. oh, cool. um, over a four, four or five-day period. And Dave actually gave the tuition to the Miami students that went. And, you know, you would, they bring in expert people in the bourbon industry, and they come in and teach you how to distill. There were people from legal that would come in and talk about the legal aspects of yeah. distilled spirits. Mm. Marketing is huge, particularly in vodka. I mean, vodka is vodka, and mm. it's ethanol and water and just a tiny little bit of other stuff. And so how do you make yours distinctive? And so I would sit, and I went every year that we went, and I would listen to these people, and I, I was thinking to myself, you know, why does that bourbon taste different? Um, and so we actually, after several years, brought a sample back to Oxford, um, and we went to Ohio State. They have this enormous piece of equipment, and, and with all equipment, it's always a bunch of abbreviations and things, <laughs> but it's called an FTICR mass spec. So it's an enormous instrument. It's about a $15 million instrument. And it can detect chemicals at tiny amounts, parts per billion amounts. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And we took White Dog and put it into the FTI. And they looked at us like we were crazy. <laughs> but, they, but they were really excited that we, we had come. And the White Dog, remember, when you do um, distillation, you're purifying a beer. That's essentially what you're doing. When you homebrew, you make a product that looks identical to what they put on the distillation column. And so you have purified this beer, and yet we could detect ten, at least 10,000 chemicals in oh the white my. dog. And so imagine how many you can detect when you put bourbon on there. Mm -hmm. And we did. We could see them. We don't know even a small fraction of what those chemicals are. But what it turns out is different bourbons have different amounts of these different chemicals in them, and that's what distinguishes one bourbon from another. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Miami University's Mike Crowder about what makes bourbon so good. So that's, that's my opinion. <laughs> it's like, that's not a verifiable fact. Um, I have done bourbon distillery tours, and the thing, I, the, the stills are always so incredible to me, but so many of them are copper or have some, some amount of copper in them. Why is copper important to this process? Yeah, so copper is, is essential. Um, 
So one of the big reasons is so those big, tall stills that you see, they're called coffee stills, and they were actually invented for scotch. Yeah. Um, and then they were kind of adopted and or stolen by the bourbon <laughs> industry, however we want to say that. Borrowed, perhaps? That's right. <laughs> Copper is a great metal for a couple of reasons. One is that you can hammer it into different shapes, mm. and so that was very big. It's also a great conductor of heat. And so you could heat these copper kettles up and the heat moves in and out of your solution or your whatever it is that you're trying to heat pretty easily. But it turns out it has a chemical essential part of it, too. And that is, is that when yeast does its biochemistry, when it's making alcohol for us during fermentation, it makes hundreds, maybe thousands of other chemicals. And one class of those chemicals have the element sulfur in them. Mm. And so we all have experienced some of these sulfur compounds, like when you walk by where a skunk has been, that's a sulfur compound. Um, but these sulfur compounds, we can detect at tiny levels. That's why we end up putting them in natural gas. Mm. So if mm. we smell that 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 sulfur-containing compound, we know get out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the yeast produce these compounds too, and they if they made their way into your glass of bourbon, it might not be a very nice experience. And so what happens is is that the these sulfur-containing compounds react with the copper. And what happens is is that the copper changes, it loses electrons, and the sulfur then, the uh, smell of it actually goes down. Mm -hmm. And the copper then is released into your distillate. And so over time, the inside of those stills start to pit. And they have to be sometimes resurfaced or new copper put in them. And I think that copper is actually very, very important for something that occurs in that barrel, too, although we haven't proven it yet. It's, an ex- it's a hypothesis I have. I mentioned earlier that oxygen comes in that barrel, and the chemicals inside the barrel, they react with each other. And it's through an oxygen chemistry, but oxygen does not react very well with compounds that have carbon in them, mm-hmm. like a lot of the mm-hmm. compounds in that barrel. Um, you need something to catalyze that reaction. And I suspect uh. that copper is a major player in this because in biology, copper reacts with oxygen in lots of different biological mm-hmm. systems. Mm-hmm. I suspect it's playing a part inside that maturing and aging in the barrel as well. Mm-hmm. So, so, Mike, as I'm thinking about your description of all this, I'm, I'm picturing kind of so this, this flow of kind of the inputs, the outputs, and then the user experience. Right. With the, the, the bourbon. Right. And so from the inputs, I've, I've heard you talk about the idea of the, the corn and the amount of corn or maybe where the corn is sourced from. Yes. There's the, the malted barley, the flavor grain. But I'm also there's also the water and mm-hmm. the, the nature of what kind of water you're putting in, which certainly the scotch uh, yes. producers think a lot about that as well. But then there's also storage. Then there's also humidity. There's also conditions of storage. So those are all, you have all of these inputs. And then I've also heard you now talk about 10,000 plus yes. different chemical chem, chemicals that can be measured in, yes. in the bourbon. And then there's the taste, yes. the, the user experience with this. Yeah. So, so as, as, you know, given this stats and stories gig we're doing here, yeah. you know, how do, what's, what is th- taking all this process of thinking about these chemicals, how do you? What are some of the things that you've done when you've looked at kind of inputs related to outputs, or how you've used outputs to ex- 
explore kind of the, a comparison of the different bourbons. Yeah. Well, so this is something that has really not been done very much. Mm-hmm. Um, I did find just in the last two weeks some papers that are never really referenced that were, and these studies were done in the 1940s. And so we've just come off of Prohibition, and um, the company that ends, that ended up owing what we now know as Buffalo Trace um, did a large study where they looked at hundreds of barrels where they put new distillate into those barrels, and they were making chemical measurements over time in those oh. from the individual barrels. Now, they didn't have the analytical equipment that we have now, but they were looking at things like, did the acidity go up in those barrels? And they do. They mm-hmm. do go up quite quickly, um, and that could also be a way that you catalyze those reactions in the barrel, too. Um, and there was a whole bunch of other things that they measured as well. And then it was like crickets. There's really been not huh. much done. If you fast forward, and, and I would say that some of the distilleries are doing it, but I would bet most of their research is tucked away somewhere and it's proprietary. Mm. But Buffalo Trace back in about... I'm going to say about 15 years ago, believe it or not, bourbon was not very popular then. And mm-hmm. they were the bourbon industry was struggling. This is 80s and even a little bit into the 90s. And, um, you know, they were struggling. Their market share was going. Vodka was winning out. Uh, wine coolers were beginning to come <laughs> in. It was a whole bunch of other options. Um, and um, there, there was a lot of fear in the bourbon industry. In fact, um, the whole reason that Blanton's ever became um, um, came forward was because the distiller there was told, you need to come up with a new product. Yeah. And he said, let's try the single barrel. And it was a big gamble. Oh. And um, the single barrel then turns out to be a very, very popular type of bourbon. And, and so they had a lot of capacity on their lines at that point. So they started this project called the Single Oak Project. And it was in a, you can read about it on the Buffalo Trace website, but what they were really after, and it was something that you didn't list, but it's a huge variable in bourbon, are the trees. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and so depending on where the tree lives, what things it pulls out of the soil, um, how, ty- how close the rings are, um, there's all these different, you know, permutations that can affect that bourbon at the end. And what they ended up doing was is they did a set of experiments. They, they harvested almost all of their white oak from the Ozarks. And this is all described on that web page. And, um, and then what they did was is that they used two different recipes, a rye and a wheat um, mash. Um, they put the bourbon in at, I think, 125 proof and 105 proof. or so. it, was, it was at different proofs. They put them in two different type of rick houses, one that was very much like the Blanton's one that has the old metal and another one in a concrete one. And it turned out to be 192 different barrels. And wow. what they did was is aged it eight years. And then they bottled them. And at a time, you, c- you can actually go and buy them secondhand or on the secondary market now, 375 mil bottles of single oak specific barrels. And they let a group of tasters taste them, and it turns out, for whatever reason, the, the uh, tasters preferred barrel number 80, so they know the recipe of that. <laughs> and so they actually have barrel 80, tens of thousands of those barrels aging right now, and they're going to release those in 24 or 25. 
Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So, 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 Mike, one, one story that you told me kind of in a, a different context was an analysis that led to a surprise. Yeah. And yeah. I was wondering if you could share yeah. that story with us. Yeah. So when we started doing our analysis of bourbon, when I saw 10,000 compounds and knew that I, there was no way we were going to be able to figure out what all of those were, I said, we need to go to a technique that's less sensitive. So over in the chemistry department uh, here at Miami, we have tons of instruments called nuclear magnetic resonance instruments. It's like an MRI when mm. you go, except for instead of putting a person in the magnet, we put little vials of bourbon. And with those, we could actually detect and actually determine the concentrations of 17 chemicals. And I said, that's a more manageable number. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we did was, and I had one grad student that was just absolutely amazing. She took NMR spectra of 250 different bourbons that we bought commercially and then analyzed them for the chemical concentration of those 17 chemicals. And, um, and we tried to get as many bourbons as we possibly could, but in our library, there we were definitely slanted toward Blanton's because that was my favorite. <laughs> and and um, when we started seeing, and we did some statistics on this, very rudimentary ones because we weren't very good at this, and we could cluster the bourbons, and we found out that we could tell which distillery made each bourbon, but we couldn't tell you which bourbon it actually was. Oh, interesting. Oh. And so... Um, and so we, we reached out to some data analytics guys up um, at a company called Mind's Eye in Dayton. And this is the kind of stuff that John and, and they love to do. Mm -hmm. is, uh, and they keep saying, oh, these data sets are not big enough. And it said it no. took <laughs> two years to actually collect this data. I wouldn't say that to you, yeah. Mike. And, and so I had seven Blanton samples in, the, in our group. And then one of our collaborators in Mind's Eye, he actually had three, mm. but he refuses to wait in line to buy his plans. He instead pays for it and gets it, you know, he goes and picks it up. And so we, we ran the analyses, and um, I was giving a talk in Lexington about two years ago, and I was showing the data and I was showing the clustering and everything. And then um, I said, now here's a blow up of the Blantons. And there were nine dots there. There were nine Blanton samples. And so a guy in the front row said, I thought you said there were 10 Blanton's samples in your group. And I said, yeah, there, we thought there was, but one of them wasn't Blanton's. And the whole place, like, started mumbling. There was 300 distillers in this room, <laughs> and they were mumbling, and it was all this. And, and so I was going to try to build up the story, but the guy in the front row didn't want to, to wait. He says, well, what was it? And I said, it was Knob Creek 12-year-old. Mm. And the whole place really went nuts. And it turns out that, and, and this one sample that we thought was Blanton's, its its little data point fell right on top of Knob Creek 12-year-old. And so what happened is one of those purchase bottles that this guy got sort of secondhand, it was an imposter. It was a fake. Huh. And our data could show that. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. I, so... I, the mythic, the mythic bourbon, right, is Pappy Van Winkle. It's mm -hmm. the one that everyone is after. Is it worth chasing down? I I need a sample of that for our collection just to have the 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 spectra and be able to have the data. Um, I think if that's something you want to do, absolutely you should do it. Um, you can occasionally find it in restaurants, mm -hmm. and so instead of paying 
$2,500 for a bottle, it might be better to pay 150 for a pour and see if you really like it. Uh, and remember that the 23-year-old Pappy has been in a barrel for 23 years. It is very oaky. It's very dry, astringent. Um, it dries your mouth out, and it's not always a pleasant experience for some bourbon drinkers. Mm-hmm. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's really um, but that's the problem with a lot of bourbons. You get to where, oh, man, I love this one, and then you can't find it. Yeah. Mm. So. Yeah, I, I was thinking about the, this idea of the, the experience of the taste. And, you know, there's there's expectations if you have, oh, I know this is a very expensive, but I'm, I'm just curious about if, if you have the, all these blind tastes evaluated, you know, sort of had these rated, and if people, you could then take those chemical makeups and then map that to kind of what, what a, a, a taster's experience is, if you were blind to brand. Yeah, so we, we are, act, so I received a grant from um, Buffalo Trace to do NMR on all 192 barrels in the single oak project. Oh, cool. And so we did that, and then we're working with the data analytics people at Mind's Eye. And um, that's exactly what we're trying to do is to map the chemical profiles oh, to the preferences of yeah. the consumer. And that that is enough data for these people That's to neat. work with. It's, it, it is a ton of things. And we have found that um, even so the Buffalo Trace people use an instrument um, called GC to actually analyze for chemicals. And there's not always good overlap or good match from what the NMR says and the GC does. Mm. So that's even another mm. issue with data that we've got to figure out what we're doing with that. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. This This was awesome. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.